Welcome to another edition of Rebellion Research's educational series. Today, we are very excited to have an adjunct professor from Columbia with us, Eric Schluss, who also is a senior data scientist with PepsiCo, really a, a brilliant individual who I have been reading up on for a few days now. I'm very excited to have on this program. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. We, uh, you know, we, we want to jump right into machine learning and marketing. Where do you see the future of machine learning and marketing? So I think that um, there's going to be, so I should, I should back up and talk about where we are now first, mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of like where we're going. So Sounds good. the current mindset is that you can do a number of hypothesis tests, um, basically to figure out whether or not um, your you know, brand is selling better or worse, um, whether you're getting like a specific campaign is doing better or worse um, with individuals. So that's, you know, pretty standard stuff, right? You just like basically look at, you know, your distributions and you run your hypothesis test, whatever. Um, what's really interesting is some of this customer segmentation stuff. So um, you can try, some people in the past have uh, tried, you know, segregating places by geography and sort of saying, okay, um, this geography is similar to this other geography and therefore we're going to use these as, as natural experimental uh, like zones. And so we're going to, you know, try campaign A in uh, place, you know, the first place and then campaign B in the second place. And what that allows you to do um, pretty, pretty reasonably is like test a hypothesis, right? Like, you know, these are going to be similar sorts of folks. They're going to have similar sort of income ranges. So discrete example, you might use like, um, Chicago and maybe Detroit as similar cities. You might use like New York City and LA or New York City and San Francisco as similar cities, similar income brackets, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, you're gonna assume similar spending behavior, purchasing power, what have you. Um, and then you're able to like assess, you know, through these natural experiments, um, because it's obviously not, you know, an experimental laboratory, people uh, can't be really experimented on. So um, you have to sort of like come up with natural experiments as they call them in the market. So, um, you know, there's a geospatial component, there's a time series component. We work a lot with cross correlations and things um, in order to assess the efficacy of our, of our marketing strategies. Um, there's also, you can use spatial correlation. So all these things sort of like come together um, to define these models. But I think what's really interesting is uh, something that I've been researching uh, in my spare time called tensor networks. So these are higher order networks. Um, and uh, let me like define what higher order means in this context. So uh, I'll start by contrasting this with um, standard neural networks. So a standard neural network uses a matrix, right? That's a two by two or uh, uh, an n by m uh, vector. And it's a set of these and you do some matrix multiplication, you apply some nonlinearity and then you do backprop, right? And that's how you uh, train this thing. So um, with a higher order tensor, you can actually train these in a number of ways, but the real uh, sort of secret to the sauce is that you use a different tensor. So order two tensors are these matrices, and you can use order three, order four. What does that mean though? Well, it means that you're in a higher dimensional space. So uh, order three tensor is a cube, and order four tensor is a hypercube of order four, but you know, sort of you're expanding your dimensional range um, outside of like, flat plane to an n-dimensional space. Now, the reason why this is useful from a marketing standpoint is, well, we've considered, you know, our features, whatever they happen to be, 
Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I can't talk about that for proprietary reasons, but there's also a time component and there's a geospatial component, as I outlined before. Now, if we consider a higher order tensor, we can bring those features um, as sort of like slices into our, our matrix multiplication. So we can have a richer shared weight environment, uh, which I think is just really fascinating and exciting. So we consider tensors of order four, so we consider a geospatial and a time series component, and then whatever features we have. So you get less back propagation and more of like a biologic uh, optimization? Uh, so let me, let me be clear. Tensor networks um, are, uh, you know, you're still doing as much backpropagation as you would right. before. Yeah, so- I know uh, you're not a fan of backpropagation, right? Well, I, I, I think backpropagation has uh, some problems. Well, yeah, it's uh, unnatural. Yeah, it's unnatural. So uh, we, uh, we sort of like, uh, you know, emailed about this a little bit, but there's no mechanism in nature that is equivalent to backpropagation. You can't observe- 100%. Uh, like your error rates, you know, a biological process goes through uh, the neurons, the, the biological process signal goes through, it doesn't go back. <laughs> it never goes backwards in time, right? So, um, you know, there's uh, things like uh, uh, feed, the feed forward alignment thing, uh, which is basically this idea that you can, you can, um, you know, sort of like you can observe uh, your, 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 your failure um, and then you have like you 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 take a, a random weight matrix and you propagate it back through. So it's not it's it's still there's a there's a feedback signal, but 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 you know, the whole thing is is nutty but wonderful. I think it's really cool because it shows us that, you know, backpropagation is definitely the winner for now, um, and it still does better than the the feed forward alignment. But um, I don't know that it's going to be the winner forever, which is kind of cool. Uh, but that's a separate notion from, I mean, a decomposable notion from these tensor networks. You can train whatever optimizer you like with a tensor network. Um, what I think is exciting- Tensors will rely on edge computing, right? Which we don't really, I mean, I mean where, do you, where do you feel we are with edge computing? Edge computing? Yeah. I mean, won't, tens, won't, uh, does, won't tensor networks rely on edge computing to have the amount of data you're going to need for you know, next level marketing? Uh... I'm I'm not familiar with the term edge computing, but yeah, so edge uh, computing is the idea of taking um, you know uh, millions of uh, miniature uh, kind of mini clouds and right. putting them all over the urban environments. And with that, gigantic companies like Verizon and eventually you know PepsiCo as well will have such uh, specific information about uh, their clients. And so when you're talking about you know, multiple planes, uh, you know, you're really, I think you really will need edge computing to get fantastic marketing algorithms in the next 10 to 20 years. Got it. So you're like talking about like, um, you know, where you, you move to like um, the internet of things sort of world, right? And then uh, you, you can pass that up to, up to clouds. Is that, that's what you're referring exactly. to? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just hadn't heard the term edge, edge computing, but I, I know what you're talking about now. We're on the same page. Um, so, I mean, I don't, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that too much, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think that there's definitely like, so the, the tensor networks that we would likely train, they're trained uh, on similar architecture with similar sort of like um, ideas. So it's just like, you know, in the cloud in AWS or GCP or Azure or something. And, you know, you can train these um, sort of just like on some, some machine with a GPU. 
Um, in fact, Google has like an unofficial library called Tensor Network, which is super cool. Um, they go through like a two hour long talk explaining uh, sort of these higher order multiplications because you have to change out your multiplication if you move into higher orders and all this stuff, which is super neat. Um, so I would highly recommend checking that out. But as far as like, I don't know that we need the level of granularity. Um, you know, there's some things I can't say, but uh, I think edge computing is an interesting notion for uh, observing other economic behavior. You've got to have some, you know, mixed feelings on edge computing. I assume it's, I mean, it's, you know, there, there are, there's positives and neg negatives to it. Yeah. So um, just to make the point, um, I think edge computing is interesting, but uh, there are, and I would be remiss if I didn't call this out, there are ethical uh, questions about edge computing that have not been answered for the purposes of marketing. Definitely. That, like, uh, I mean, you know, we should be thinking about these sorts of things, like where does privacy begin? Where does privacy end? I'm not sure. Um, I'm also, I want to be very clear, I'm not uh, like able to make any of these decisions within my job capacity. So I know we've been talking about edge computing, but like in no way should that signal <laughs> that I have any control over. I, I don't think any data scientists really have the capacity or capability to make those ethical decisions. It's almost always comes down to the CEO of that organization. You yeah. know, how far do they want to go when it comes to, you know, efficacy? So, you know, with facial recognition, for instance, I've got a lot of friends in that space and they say that, you know, it really comes down to what the CEO of that particular company is willing to do and where they're willing to go. So that there's really, really one person that gets to make that decision. So, you know, I, I always, you know, caution people to not, you know, uh, judge data scientists as those looking to kind of, you know, invade on your privacy, which unfortunately a lot of people have that feeling about, you know, next generation tech. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate, but it, it and it puts us in an, in, an, in an odd place, unfortunately, but, you know, I think there is thing. There are things you can do to act ethically within the space. Um, once you get that data, how you use it, what you use, and how you process it, is certainly um, like a possibility. And I think there, are, there. While I'm not an expert in this space, I will say that some of the tools out there are really great. Um, so I know that uh, folks at y, at IBM have the uh, AI 360 uh, tool. Um, another tool I really like, uh, Pymetric. Uh, has this AI audit tool that actually runs statistical tests to make sure that you're not biasing your data. You can also use mutual information to assess whether or not two groups are being treated equally if the mutual information uh, you know, between them for different variables are, are equivalent. Um, so there's a, a bunch of these techniques out there. Um, you know, the efficacy of them, uh, it's really gonna be on a case-by-case -case basis and really dependent, but um, the community seems to center it around uh, visualization, like data visualization, and when accounting for protected variables like uh, race, gender, ethnicity, these sort of, well, sorry, those two, uh, first and third one are the same, but, um, you know, uh, age, um, socioeconomic status, when you account for these things, uh, these demographic variables that should be protected in your model, then you can at least interrogate whether or not something is happening. And I can, there are specific cases in my past, in my career, where I've been able to uh, avoid a racially biasing decision by simply looking at those protected variables and seeing how the model would predict and then making allowances for that. Of course, you can't do that in every case. Um, 
and it's definitely, you know, for larger decisions like the one we're talking about before, it's going to come down to C-suite before you can really you know, interrogate that. No. Anyway, that's all a caveat and aside. I don't know. It definitely brings up an interesting point. You know, is AI racist? You know, probably, definitely. Uh, you know, facial recognition certainly is. And so, you know, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you know for instance, you know, I, I love talking about on Fido, which was started by a friend of mine, Hussein Kusai, a really cool facial, facial recognition company in London. And the way that they have uh, you know, been very kind of responsible about the work they've done is by working with Scotland Yard and taking driver's license so that they can cross their official verification with driver's licenses so that they can you know root out the you know the racist bias that would be in the algo due to as you know darker skin color you know provides an issue for facial recognition. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. so tell us about Columbia. What will you be teaching this fall? Uh, so I'm going to be teaching a machine learning class in two parts. Um, I'm very excited for it. Uh, so we're going to start the students. Uh, this is in their one of their master's programs for architecture and planning. Um, so we're going to start the students, um, which is the field that is, as a whole, from what I understand, is becoming increasingly statistical in nature, which is why um, I'm teaching this class. So we're going to start the students with an introduction to Python, and then we're going to start uh, into you know statistics proper. Um, I'm actually open sourcing my lectures, uh, so I'll be recording um, the video as well as the lecture notes are going to be up on, on GitHub. Um, and so I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, the general ethos of the course is because it's, you know, it's like three semesters or it's three half term. It's, it's uh, one full semester in the fall and then a half semester in the spring. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so in the course, um, you know, I'm going to try to impose this or give them the sense of this ethos of um, skepticism. And I think it's honestly missing from the data science community to some degree writ large, like a lot of the papers you see, you know, someone beats a benchmark, right? And so they get published in the fancy journal or they come up with some technique and, you know, they like made it, they sort of p-hacked a little bit, right? Like, oh, you know, we chose the data set. Uh, because of whatever reason, but really that's because that's the one that their algorithm does the best on. Maybe they tried it on 100 and it's good on four. And so then they publish the paper and they show the results and like, oh, look, we beat the previous benchmark on this data set, right? And so I think a lot of that stuff is just, it's fine and it catches headlines. Uh, and we have, I think, legitimately moved the space forward uh, in a lot of ways uh, because we've had this sort of freedom to move fast um, but there are consequences to that. And I think that the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm really excited that the ethos of my course, and then, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of writing my first uh, book on statistics. The focus is going to be about skepticism, about not giving you one technique that is going to rule them all, um, because a lot of new grads really are just like neural networks all the way forever. Um, but rather, you know, the way to get to a truly informed view about what's happening with your data is to try 15 different things. And if they all agree, then you might be sure that something is actually legitimate. But any one technique, you know, there's statistical power, right? Like bias, all this stuff comes into play and you can't be sure of your results if you only Speaking try. Speaking of new techniques, I've got to ask you, what about Q learning? Last year, every other paper was about Q learning. And, you know, I was wondering if you have any insider feelings here. 
Um, so I believe you're referring to DQ learning, like reinforcement learning, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. So reinforcement learning is an exciting idea um, for sure. I mean, so just to break down the general notion, it's this idea that you can, without labels, if you just give uh, a system data, you can actually learn the rules themselves. The, the, these, these agents can, can observe what's happening, right? They can, if you yes. give them a simulated environment, then you don't need to provide any label data at all. Um, and so the promise of reinforcement learning is really like powerful. And if it works, as it has in many example games, right, where the system is well-defined, the environment is well-defined. Um, I have actually used this uh, technique to do pricing in, in um, not financial markets, but in uh, sort of really small markets. Um, so like in the ad buying space where it's entirely programmatic, um, you can actually train an agent to observe what the right uh, price is to buy or not buy. Ad buying would be an ideal ecosystem for uh, Q-learning, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think reinforcement learning definitely has a place, um, you know, because it's like, it's this, it's sort of like a natural fit, right? From the ideas of economics, you have agents in an auction and they're trying to learn the optimal strategy with wow. the auction. And the auction's not going to be changing very much. You know, it's going to be the same auction if you're buying for the same ad space, the same eyeballs, like every time. So like, you know, you have a fairly like rigid set of implied rules and then there's like the infrastructure and the environment that's not going to really change much. And so it's very easy to, to do it to your point. At the end of the day, they're learning to trade a rook for a pawn, you know. Right. You know, yeah. so, um, you know, I, I, I like to joke that, you know, machine learning is very much, uh, you know, uh, an engine for boating. And so you've got certain outboard motors that are ideal for a small lake in Maine. Then, you know, you've got your oceans and your bays and various engines are ideal for various situations. So, you know, deep learning, for instance, was something that, you know, we did a lot of work with at Rebellion, but, you know, we found about a decade ago that deep learning just isn't dynamic enough to use in an ongoing, you know, financial predictions. You know, at Rebellion, we're trying to predict the global economy and then, you know, create customer accounts. You know, we're, we're, we're number one a think tank and we're secondarily an asset management firm, but the asset management firm trying to predict the economy. And the problem with deep learning is that it's just too slow and it's not going to, you know, pivot uh, at, you know, the, the way reinforcement learning will. Of course, there are trade-offs in, in, in every, you know, nothing, you know, get nothing for free in life. Right. Yeah, no, I think that that's an interesting point that you bring up, that speed is like very important for this. Um, you know, and there's like, there's a number of ways to solve for it. So, um, there's forever ago, the, what it, I think it was called like the, the, either the ghost or the, like the, the animals in the market. And it was like these signals that you could pick out, right. Where trading strategies would execute. And they had sort of like rule-based things where you would just sort of buy and then you'd sell. And it was based on these like cutoffs. Right. And then you have, and that was like really, really fast. And then you have things like the black Scholes model, which, you know, who knows how well it prices, but it's it's pretty yeah. quick. Arguable, very arguable. Very arguable, very, very arguable. arguable. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reason, I think, why the Black-Scholes model worked when it came out. Um, the markets were much smaller, it was much less dynamic, right? You could sort of like deal with the fact that it was a one-dimensional e-transfer equation, but I think now uh, the markets are, I don't know that it's the most well-fitting model, that's all I'll say, but you know, it's not, it's not the worst thing you could do um, because at least your errors are like 
you, you can sort of plan for them, right? Because it's it's uh, it's it's not a probabilistic model in in the same sense, right? It's like mm -hmm. a physical it's a physical model. Um, so yeah, you get you get something back, um, but yeah, it's anyway. That's an aside. Um, <laughs> so I I could talk about pricing models forever. Um, uh, I mean, so yeah, so like, much more ideal environment for ML. I mean, right? No, exactly. You know, you, the, the most you can create uh, the vacuum like ecosystem is the, the best, you know, uh, ideal place for your ML to operate. And so, you know, the problem with the economy is that you've got, you know, a lot of, you know, things coming at you from various angles and, you know, it changes very quickly and new uh, factors that weren't relevant a month ago all of a sudden become relevant. You know, it's how, you know, a year ago, how many people predicted that, uh, you know, a virus in China would be the number one affecting exactly. Yeah, so I think you've hit the nail on the head. I'm just going to sort of like give it a name. I think feature selection, the correct feature selection in a fast-paced dynamic environment, that is the key of really solving for the model. Totally. Because, you know, do you really need anything better than, I don't know, something that handles reasonable levels of nonlinearity, optimizes quickly, and is like kind of fast? Probably not. But the features you choose to train on are going to define everything for like whether you're pricing the market well or not. I think that's just, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's, that's, that's what it is, right? Yeah. Well, this was a great talk. Uh, you know, I, I'm excited to have you. I hope you'll come on again for another program. Uh, this was oh, great. Absolutely. Yeah, no, this was so, super fun. Yeah. Um, we'll have a, a wonderful evening. And uh, I look forward to in the fall, you know, post-COVID, getting to you know, hang out in person. Oh yeah, that would be really nice. Uh, be nice. Hopefully, when the, in the fall, it's over. Uh, One of my machine learning poker games—they're fun. Oh yeah, that sounds yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. yeah. I mean, as, assuming assuming that we it's safe, uh, I would love to. Yeah. Yes, obviously, definitely. All right. Have a great day, Eric. Thank you. You. Bye.